hell of a conversation. Do we do we show, do we visualize O'Neill's death? And one of the first cuts of the film, you know, ended with Bill O'Neill committed suicide. That's it. <laughs> and then it was, you know, credits. And people were just like, this is... It wasn't even just <laughs> murder. It was just Bill O'Neill committed suicide. Then the music came on, and then that was it. And people were like, this is the most depressing film <laughs> I've ever seen. When we were putting together the, the outline, yeah, we, we definitely thought we were gonna sh- we were going to show his death. But I think, you know, through the script and then finally getting to shooting it, it just... It just would have been, it would have been very, very, very expensive. And I, and I think also gruesome. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's one of those scenes where it's like, I, I like how we ended it. I think, I, think the, I think the editors and I think Shaka did a great job in just like making sure we ended on Hampton mm-hmm. and giving his speech and just a bit more hopeful. I, I think it's right to leave with Hampton. Judas and the Black Messiah is a hot new film on HBO Max about the life of Chicago Black Panther Fred Hampton and the FBI informant who snitched on him and led to him being murdered by Chicago police. It stars Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. It is compelling. It is powerful. It is gripping. And the original story was by the Lucas Brothers, who've been on this show before. I texted them. I said, let's do it again. We want to come and just talk about this film. They said, let's do it. So here we are talking about Judas and the Black Messiah with the guys who originally came up with this idea of talking about Fred Hampton and this FBI snitch who brought him down. It's the Lucas Brothers talking about Judas and the Black Messiah on Toray Show. The film is fantastic. It's deep and gripping and very interesting. I watched it twice. Lots of thoughts about it. Uh, Explain to me how this journey toward this film even began, because this was originally your idea, right? Uh, Yeah. So we, um, we, um, I don't know, we got into comedy around 2010, and uh, we had always been fascinated by the Hampton story and, just like, you know, the tragedy of it all and, and just how, you know, how young he was as a as an organizer and as a leader and, and just how like insidious it was that the, the state, the FBI and the Chicago Police Department and, the, the, you know, the city apparatus in Chicago, Mayor Daley, Hammerhand, um, just how they conspired to assassinate him. So it was just one of those things, one of those stories that when you learn about it, you 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 can't help but not think about it all the time. And I think it was right around 2012. I think Trayvon Martin had just been murdered and it, you know, it sparked all this this unrest. And um we just started thinking like what can we how can we use our our platform to to tell a story that speaks to the times, but but doesn't necessarily speak to speak to the time. It speaks about a, 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 a I mean, a, an incident that happened, you know, well into the '60s. So and so Hampton came back to us, and his story came back to us, and we were like, we need to figure out a way to to turn this story into a film. So it was around 2012 we started doing more research about Hampton. We read this book called The Assassination of Fred Hampton by Jeffrey Haas, who was a lawyer of uh of hampton in the 60s and then we read black against empire 
we read Revolutionary Suicide. We started watching a bunch of his um, his speeches on YouTube. And uh, we also um, stumbled upon this transcript of William O'Neill uh, when he gave his uh, interview with the Eyes on a Prize. We had never seen the documentary. We had never seen video footage. We just read the transcript a bunch of times. And as we kept reading it and reading it and reading it, we were like, wait a second, this might be the framework for a film because to us, you know, it, I don't know, Kenny can probably explain more about it. But to us, when we were, when we were reading it, we were like, this feels like a crime thriller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it just sort of, the way he laid out the story, it just sort of read in a, like a sort of classic three act framework. And, and so we were just like, okay, this could be a good way to organize our story. Um, knowing full well with the intentionality that this is really a, a narrative about COINTELPRO, about uh, Fred Hampton, and about how the state uh, worked to assassinate a citizen exercising his constitutional rights. So we had all that sort of baked into what we wanted to, wanted to do, but we had this narrative framework that we thought could work cinematically. Yeah, and it also felt very biblical, too. You know, you have this guy who, you know, gets close to this very, you know, messianic figure i wouldn't Mm -hmm. say he didn't see himself as jesus of course but you know when you when you read about him you're like oh man this guy had the ability to unite and he had strong oratory skills and he had the ability to do things that a lot of leaders can't and then he betrays them then he commits suicide so again the framework for a story what it just felt right for 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 cinema well let's take a step back so so go a little deeper into why Fred Hampton. I remember hearing the story of Fred Hampton as a kid and being very moved by it. The whole story of the Panthers is deeply moving and and cinematic. Um, you know, Fred Hampton is a great charismatic character. I wonder why him and not the Oakland Panthers, hmm. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, who also had similar adventures for lack of a better word also had fbi informants you know getting in with them you could have done a similar thing around the oakland group so why were you why hampton um i don't know i think i think it was a a number of things i think uh i think there were some problematic issues with uh uh huey p newton and his relationship with women and his relationship with power and his relationship okay. with uh, violence. And so, you know, as a person whom, and, and again, Huey P. Newton, I, I, I don't disrespect him. I understand his importance. I understand his contributions to the struggle. I understand, uh, you know, his commitments, but I feel like as a, as a character for cinema, if we're trying to, uh, if we're having a renegotiation with our relationship and how we're portraying a Black Panthers, and uh, who we're going to make our sort of hero, I think we have to really give thought to which character we want to get behind. And I feel like Fred Hampton is just a pure person, just a nicer person, a, a, a less uh, le- less cult, cult of a personality type person. And I just felt like it just worked more in the cinematic. But also, philosophically speaking, I feel like I probably have more in common with Fred, when I was younger, not now, I'm sure. not even close to Fred Hampton, but when I was younger, I felt like I probably had more in common with Hampton than I did with Huey. Um, and my relationship with Chicago, I just have a different relationship with Chicago than I do with Oakland. I, I've spent more time in Chicago than I have in Oakland. Uh, and I love Oakland, I love the Bay Area, but I just I have, a, I have a different sort of relationship with Chicago. 
Is there a story about Fred or just sort of a, a, a way of further understanding him that didn't make it into the film, but still sort of lives in your heart of like, well, if we could have done another hour, we would have gotten into this yeah. also. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, when, um, you know, when Shaka and Will first presented us the script, I mean, it was, it was much more robust. It was like, they had like elements of like, you know, how the Panthers, uh, uh, went about uh, getting fi- uh, getting money to finance the hospital and finance the free breakfast program. It went into the particulars of that, which I think could be a very fascinating uh, story in and of itself. Just like, I, I, you know, you never really think about it, but it's like, yeah, the free breakfast program costs money. The, mm-hmm. the, the, How did they get money for the free breakfast program? I mean, it, it really just like going out to businesses and seeking donations. Mm-hmm. So they would go to like various organizations that presented themselves as committed to, to the black cause. And they would essentially just try to uh, uh, convince them to, 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 to give a donation. And also uh, Hampton, Hampton would speak at college campuses right. and they get money that way uh, to fund their various uh, programs. Right. Right. So his, his speaking engagements were, were mostly utilized to raise money. Wow. Uh, wow. Right. Yeah. So like it, that was in that was baked into the script. You know, they they really went into detail about about how they received. That was like his own plot line, actually receiving money to build the to build the uh, the uh, the hospital at the end. But, wow. you know, because of time, we had to we had to cut that out. So. So. Wait, yeah. So. So you guys wrote your story about right. Fred Hampton and Bill o- o- O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Correct. And, and then you linked with Shaka, the director? Right. right. So, you know, around 2013, we had put together a story treatment. We put together a pitch deck. Uh, and, you know, we had it all mapped out for the most part. And we went around town. We went to various production companies, studios. And we just started, you know, we were pitching our story. And uh, we got rejections across the board. So uh, we, we tabled it for about a year, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, we started working with, we, we were working with Bernie for a bit. We, you know, we did our cartoon. Bernie we, Sanders. You know, we were in 22. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. So we were just like, we, we kind of just like, like Bernie Mac or Bernie, no, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> no, we, 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 we did some, you know, we, some disinvolatory work with Bernie Mac. And uh, no, we. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Bernie Mac. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so we just like, kind of like, went away from it because we, we were failing so much and we were just like we need to rethink our approach to this because obviously uh, we're not we're not able to convince these executives to give us money to make this so we need to we need to uh, rethink our strategy and we were like i think we need to I, I i just looked at an email from maybe 2015 i was like i think we need to link with a filmmaker uh, mm-hmm. to take us to the next level and we were just fortunate by the graces of God to to work with Shaka on this um, this FX pilot, mm-hmm. and he was a comedy pilot for for Killer Mike. And you know we were, we were on set with him for a full day, pretty much. It was a full right, shoot, right. eight hours, maybe even ten hours. And we did we got to really know him, just see like his style and his approach to directing, and uh, his, his he was just super laid back, and we we just took a liking liking to him. And then we yeah. went back and watched all of his stuff. And then we were like, oh, man, this guy's immensely talented. And right. we think that if we pitch him our idea, he'll be able to, to not only translate it to, to executives, but turn it into a, cine, a cinematic gold. So, uh, you know, before, we, but we didn't reach out to him immediately, but we just started like in the back of our heads thinking like he, he could be the person that 
takes it to the next level. Right. Why are you not the screenplay writers? Oh, oh, because we wrote the story, but they went off. They went off and wrote the screenplay. We right. didn't write so, the screenplay. So Will Burson, the other screenwriter on on the on the uh, the screen the, the screenplay, he had already written uh, yeah. a, a, a film about Fred Hampton, and it was brilliant. It was a bit more robust than what we were coming for. It was pretty much like how he explains it. It was like Michael Mann, Michael Mann's Heat, where you know you had Hoover and Fred mm. Hampton sort of basically engaging in this dialogue with one another while not engaging in a dialogue with one another. Right. And it was really brilliant. I, I thought it, we thought it, we all thought it was great. So that's why, right. you know, we were like, we need to bring him on board because, you know, he wrote a brilliant script about Fred Hampton. We think we can use some of his, some of his scenes and some of his work in his screenplay, use our story, synthesize the two. And then now you have a screen, uh-huh. now you have a screenplay that you can present to studios and execs. It's it, so I, I, I've seen a lot of your you guys's work, and this is not funny. And <laughs> I, 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 I'm trying to see where are the Lucas brothers' fingerprints on this. And obviously, you know, we've talked about your life before in this show. You guys are much more than just comedians. You guys were law students. You guys right. are philosophers. So you're right. way more than just stand up. But like. So I'm just trying to understand where, how does this fit into the Lucasness? Yeah, the That's a good question. I mean, I think I think it fits in sort of perfectly because you know our thing is always to come from a different angle on whatever genre, like whatever genre we're working in. We want to come from a different perspective. We want to we want to do something that makes it new or at least bold and fresh and I think the the with the Hampton thing, the our biggest contribution is we said let's go through the perspective of William O'Neill. Let's make this a, a story about the snitch. No one was thinking that. No one would even no one would even think that that's a, a a reasonable thing to do because it would have upset a lot of people. But I think in our minds we're like, no, this will make this a classic film. Yeah, I, I think mean, that, we, and we're even seeing you know through the internet and from reviews. Like the biggest controversy so far is the fact that it it comes from the perspective of the snitch. Yes, it does bother me to <laughs> some extent that that the informant is a bigger character than this amazing. Person. But he's not a bigger character. He, he, I, I, he's not a bigger character. Hampton drives the story. Hampton is is ubiquitous from the very first. From the very first frame to the very ending of it, like Hampton's, his, he's so mythological that that you can't help but feel his presence in every scene. Yes, the I think how we enter the story is through William O'Neill, but I, I, in terms of the more important character, in terms of just like importance to history, obviously is Hampton. But I think in terms of telling a, a story in a film, you have to make choices, right? You, do you want to do the cradle to the grave traditional by the numbers biopic that we've seen before that we're tired of? Or do you want to make something that's a bit more more genre bending? And and I think that our goal was to make make Hampton's story a bit more of a, a genre bending biopic as opposed to a traditional one. I think what the things that lands for me when I get to the end of the piece, and I'm assuming the audience has seen the film, is Bill O'Neill 
enough of a villain and a Judas, right? Because this is what the piece is, right? We have the, the Black Messiah and the Judas, right? Yeah. And, and his place as a heroic figure is Clint. He's great politically. He's great romantically. Like, right. I mean, everybody's going to love the hell, right? He just saves cats in every scene. We just love the hell out of, right. out of Chairman Fred. Right. But I'm like, is Bill enough of a villain? Is he that, is he really, like, because they, the infiltrators would lie, would right. cheat, would steal, would make them look worse than they were. Right. And he wasn't really doing that. Um. So uh, let's let's talk about that. Like, is he enough of a villain? I would say I would say yes. I mean, look, he he pretended to. Well, he he got the he organized the, not organized the shootout, but he basically facilitated the shootout first by giving the information uh, about George Sam's, and then about and then by fucking pretending to be the sniper. All that shit was done by him. He wanted to do the C four uh, uh, action. I think that he was. And he also very poisoned dis- Fred Hampton. He also poisoned Fred <laughs> Hampton. Poisoned Fred Hampton that w- that which eventually led to his assassination. Like I would say, he's absolutely the villain, but he's also an agent of the state. The state is the real villain, right? The FBI, right, yeah. the, the FBI, Mayor Daly, uh, Hammerhand, Hoover—they're the real villains. And and Bill O'Neill he's is an man. agent for them, and he's working he's for the- them. He's he he's their proxy essentially. And I would say well, unequivocally that makes him the villain, uh, or at least right. one of the villains in a larger story. Uh, I mean, he's, but he's, he's certainly the villain. I, 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 I wanted to see more just dirt dumped on top of him. And when you get to the end and he's like, well, I had a point of view. I joined the struggle. Right. I was like, wait, nigga, you think you were in the struggle? <laughs> <laughs> he does. He does. He's, he he believed it. But he was conflicted. I think that that's the beauty of, I mean, that's the beauty and the tragedy of the story is that like you hear this guy, you see him and you're like, wait a second. Does he really believe that he was a part of the struggle or is this, is he lying to save, save face? And then internally he really just wants to kill himself. So it's like, I think that that's part of the power and going from the perspective of Bill O'Neill is that he's so duplicitous and he lies to himself and then he ultimately kills himself. And I think that you juxtapose that with someone like Fred Hampton, who was so self-assured, so committed to his principles, so committed yeah. to the truth. I think you have a, a more powerful story. You, you, you're, you're actually examining uh, uh, the souls of people. You're not just looking at, you know, the Hampton side of it, but you're looking at the Bill O'Neill side of it because we've all, we've all met people who are more like Bill O'Neill than like Fred Hampton, I'm, I'm sure. Sure. And right. I, I think this is, you want to examine that. And he does it for so little. It's not right. like, he, like even in Queen and Slim, the brother cakes up for selling them right. out. He right. just right. like he gets two hundred thousand dollars over time. Mm-hmm. But like right. when uh, when when his when he when they give him the, the a couple of bucks at the end and the keys to a gas station, I was like, damn nigga, you sold them out for peanuts. <laughs> yeah. Peanuts. yeah, peanuts. But that but peanuts. The, but that but that elevates the the. the the, the story the of it because it's like yes. the tragedy because it's like Hampton died for that like yes. this great figure died for that like that's like it just sickens you it, it, you can't help but feel sick to your stomach what else do you know about Bill O'Neill that maybe isn't on the page because he's not 
he has no like Hampton has a life has a has a has a you know had other people in his family who he goes to you know he has he's growing a family so mm-hmm. we get to know him as a person Bill O'Neill is just a worker he never right he never goes home mm-hmm. right he, ne- he, he as far as the film shows he doesn't have a mom or a girlfriend or whatever so like who is he as a person in this society well I mean I think when he was doing his undercover work he wasn't really involved with many people. I know when he outside of it, he did get married. He got, he had kids uh, and they moved to California. He had an uncle. He moved to California briefly and then he migrated back to Chicago. I think he probably escaped from Chicago because he had like probably death threats and stuff like that. So he probably escaped to Cali, but then he came back to uh, Chicago in the late mid to late eighties. Mm-hmm. And he lived with his wife and kids. But I think in so, a film, I think in a film, he sort of represents the audience, right? You sort of like, you you come into the film and you you have a conflicted viewpoint about the Panthers, you know, based on how Hollywood has treated them over the years. And not just Hollywood, but, you know, the media in general, you know, they, they painted the Panthers as this terrorist organization that was very militant and they had guns and they shot up things and that was about it. But you don't really you don't really see a full picture of them, and I, and I think by going through uh, with Will, I mean, coming through the perspective of Will and you know coming into seeing that the Panthers be a more robust organization, you you hope that the audience starts to you know change in terms of their their uh, position on the Panthers. But obviously in the film it doesn't have an impact on on Bill O'Neill. But you hope that the audience has. It has more of an impact on the audience, at least. I mean, he. I, I. I wondered if he felt torn because he was in the group, and he does start to see like, wow, they are doing like really good things. Right, like right. they, they are. You know, I, I'm, I'm down for this. He's, he's definitely helping the cause at some level. He's hurting them even more, but he's definitely doing the work and helping them. Um, uh, did, we talk about, was, did, did we talk about this? I don't know if we talked about this before, but this, you you know, Ernest Withers, the photographer for the civil rights. You, you ever see that? I have a dream. Uh, the I have a dream picture of King okay. waving back that a okay. very iconic photo, right? Yeah. Uh, so Ernest Withers took that photo. He's pretty much known as the father of the civil rights photography. Just a, 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 I am a man. All of that photography, amazing work, captured the movement. I, I think it's going to stand the test of time, even even after we're dead. You're going to see those photos. Turns out he was an informant for the FBI, right? What? So he was an informant for the FBI. So this goes to your thing. He did work for the movement. He, I mean, I think he did marvelous work for the movement. I'm talking like pristine photography. Yeah. He's an informant. How the hell do you fucking balance that? How do you balance that? Like, how do you balance those two yeah, contradictory I mean, the cognitive dissonance must have been crazy. Of like, right. I actually like these people, right. and I believe what they're doing, and I'm still right. But it's—I right. mean, it's—it's it's a very American story, you know. You know, the American ethos for the most part is rugged, indiv- rugged individualism. Pull yourself up from your bootstrap. It's very like self—you know—self-interested. The individual self-preservation, self-preservation, and I think Bill O'Neill is a very American character. You know, one thing with self-preservation. And from because I mean I have Panthers in my family. I've read a lot about them. You know, it's one of my favorite parts of that the resistance. 
they were extraordinarily on guard for infiltration. They knew the pigs are constantly trying to infiltrate us. So just mm-hmm. even the whisper that somebody might have been with the police was enough to get you pushed in the corner or completely excommunicated. Mm-hmm. And when they meet with the the crowns mm-hmm. and the crowns make him think like he's a cop and they're like, and his, his, his response is kind of like, yeah, I mean, like, he's kind of telling the truth, but mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like the truth. It sounds like yeah. a lie. And yeah. I was like, they would have been like, nigga, fuck you. Get the fuck out of here. Like, right, we don't right. trust you anymore. And, like, right. he skirts out of, like, if he came with, like, bam, here's my story. They'd be like, okay. But his story is janky. Mm-hmm. And they, and they, I, I, I'm like, the Panthers who I know in my life and in history would have been like, Nigga, you got to you got to get to step in, man. We can't trust you anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, based on some of the you know eyewitness conversations about you know Bill O'Neill, I, I think that a lot of them were skeptical of Bill O'Neill. I don't think that they were convinced he was, and I don't I don't think that they were so like convinced that he was a committed panther that they didn't they weren't a little wary of him. I think that he some of his actions were a bit outrageous. Like he. He built a, 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 I mean, electric chair to 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 uh, uh, you know electric electrocute potential uh, snitches. I mean, Fred tore tore it down and said, "There's no way they can do that." But I think that he had, he had done some very extreme things for them to be like, you know, be wary of this guy. What I'm what I'm guessing is they didn't think he was he was that deep with the FBI. I mean, no one really because he, he was he was committing crimes. You know what I mean? Like there were moments when he committed crimes, and I, I guess in their mind, it's like if he's committing crimes, then there's no way he's he's a police officer because they just mm-hmm. don't do that. So I think I think a lot of it was he's going so far beyond what you're supposed to be doing that it sort of made them think that he wasn't an informant. I think people just thought he was crazy, but I don't think they thought he was. I mean, I don't think they trusted him, but I don't think they thought he was like a, a informant. I think they probably just thought he was insane. So uh, I want to come back to this, but who is the Lil Rel character? <laughs> who who is he? Some people are calling yeah. him the FBI pimp. <laughs> <laughs> so just informants are everywhere. Yeah, yeah. but that I mean, I, I think that you know when people look back and study the Cointel Pro and what they call the, the FBI called it the Ghetto Informant Program, but there were seven thousand snitches. 7,000, mm-hmm. you know, folks throughout the country, 7,000 plus throughout the country. And you just never knew, you never knew who was an informant. I mean, it, 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 they really played us against one another. Mm-hmm. I think it's captured perfectly in the script. I mean, I think they did a great job in capturing that in the script. And, you know, Shaka did a great job capturing it in the, in the, in the movie. I mean, that's a, that's a moment where you're like, what is happening here? Right. What is going on? Oh my God. But right. I think it's like, you know, the George Sam's uh, part of it, which is a mm-hmm. true story. It's like, I think it's like, you want to play on that paranoia. Like who's who, who's an informant, who's, who might not be an informant. Where are they? Like George, the George Sam shit, when we found out about that, it blew our minds. It was like, I can't mm-hmm. believe they have another informant who killed a person that they said was an informant. It's like, the FBI was really on some some psychological warfare shit, and, it was, and, it was, and used him to then be able to infiltrate every. Now that moment when Lakeith's Bill 
hears of what they did to another informant, you really see on his face and right. in his body how he's torn right. and right. how he's lying to them about like, yeah, I would have done such and such. I would have, yeah. I would have killed that nigga. Right, and right, we right. should kill these stitches. And like, you see, like, oh, he's shook. But he's playing <laughs> like as an actor. Like that's one of his great moments in the film, Agreed. where he really exudes two feelings at once. Right. And I, I mean, I, I believe that was improv. That wasn't. That wasn't in. Uh, wow. That wasn't in the script. I think mm. how wow. he went off and just sort of, yeah. You you see the you see the fear. You see you feel it. And it's just like he, he's such a he's such a subtle actor, man. You don't, mm-hmm. you, don't you don't yes. I think one he, of the other great moments in the script. I mean, there's a lot of great moments in the script, but when Hoover is like, "So what are you gonna do when your daughter brings home a Negro?" Right, <laughs> and, and like you kind of get at like the heart of what a lot of this racial paranoia is about. Right. for people like them and for a lot of white mm-hmm. people like like we don't want parity we don't want them in our family we don't want them with our daughters we don't we don't want them taking our jobs we mm-hmm. don't want them to our 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 way of life i.e. white supremacy is at stake right mm-hmm. and fred hampton is the tip of the spear and right. we have to cut this off and like i thought that was that was a really really amazing important conversation yeah right. i mean you know when burson wrote his script it was a lot of hoover and his the way he characterized Hoover is 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 a way I hadn't seen in a long time. Just like mm-hmm. you know, even you've seen some portrayals of him as being kind of icky, but not like mm-hmm. to the point where he's just like so bit of a monster, you know, bit of a just yeah. like like a cartoon monster who's who's just racially who's racially driven. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, seeing that play out and seeing it in the movie and, and reading it in the script for the first time, it was just like. Yeah, they they really. I mean, I, I, I really, I think we really wanted to go for making the FBI seem like they were gangsters. Like we wanted, mm-hmm. we wanted it, that. That was the crime element that we wanted to invert. Like usually, when you watch a crime drama, the police officers are straight and narrow, and they're good guys, and the gang members are are the bad guys. But in this shit, it's like we flipped it. We made the cops the gangsters. Like mm-hmm. literally, the final set piece, they bang into the house with a fucking Tommy gun. On some like, and, and it takes place in Chicago, which I think is beautiful because of their history of organized crime. Right, going right. back to fucking uh, you see, Al Capone. And you see Roy Mitchell; he has the cigar in his mouth, and he's a, he's just a straight gangster. Mm-hmm. I mean, when it's totally gangster, when we get the close up on the sister, and they they are commenting that Fred Hampton is still alive, mm-hmm. and they shoot him. And that's true. Now he's good and dead. And that's mm-hmm. and those are actual words. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I I mean I've I've read the story. I mean like oh, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it 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 freaking is so gangster, right? I mean like right. menace to society like is he dead? Shoot him again. Right. 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 And I couldn't two, even imagine shots. how she's feeling right. carrying his baby and she listens to him being mur- like he's still alive, now he's not like yeah. oh my yeah. god. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean it's it's America. I mean, it's the American government. They're they're so gangster, and they project. You know, they project all of their 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 neuroses and neuroses on us, and they they're they're afraid of us. But I'm like, you guys are the biggest gangsters. You guys you know, you can literally walk into a, a person's a home and just kill them dead in front of their pregnant girlfriend, and then just go on with your day. Like that's some gangster shit. 
and, and, and pay I, a million and a half dollars years and years later after all mm-hmm. that fighting you know you know after all, all the courtroom battles like that that 1.5 million that probably went to yeah, but, but think about this think about this think about this the state paid they paid william o'neill a, a quarter of a million dollars to do what he did uh, who knows how much money they spent spent on surveillance of of uh of fred hampton bugging them and keeping uh Agents on them and and spying on them and all. So I'm I'm guessing the operation must have called mil- cost millions of dollars. So they spent a million dollars to kill him, and then they spent another two uh, one in one point seven million dollars to pay the family for killing him. So in total, they spent almost three million dollars to to spy on a person and then pay the family out. They spent three million dollars for that. They spent like, more money on the spy. And and now multiply that across the country, like. Yeah. They, they probably yeah. spent maybe 50 to 100 million dollars spying and killing black people. I mean, That's they were crazy. definitely spying on Malcolm just yep. the same. They were spying on Martin. King just yep. the same. They were yep. spying on uh, Huey and Carmichael. Eldridge and them, just the Bobby yeah. Seal, just the same. Yep. Yep. It, it, it was, was it was it was a budget. Like they had a budget in the yeah. <laughs> You know what? You know what? One thing on I I wanted I wanted Bill O'Neill to kill himself on screen and for it not to be a card, mm. you know? And I like that would have perhaps made me feel more like, okay, the, the traitor got what he deserved by his own hand. His guilt is so like watch eyes on the prize, turn that shit off, go in the room and freaking shoot yourself in the head. Mm. Yeah, I mean that was a conversation. Do we do we show? Do we visualize? Do we visualize uh, O'Neill's death? I, I think there were a lot of things that probably would have been tough to do. You have to introduce another character with the uncle. You gotta, I mean, you gotta film a fucking guy getting hit by a car. You know, like that's expensive. You gotta get the highway. You gotta like it, it, it's just a, a much more expensive scene. Wait, what are you saying? How did he kill himself? He, yeah, he, he jumped, ran into he, the highway. He ran into uh, to the expressway and killed himself. Like he jumped in front of a car while a bunch of cars were driving by. He just ran in front of ran into one. Yeah. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. 
Each of NPR's Black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. So you thought about do we show this on screen? I think screen? when we were putting together the, the outline, yeah, we we definitely thought we were going to sh- we were going to show his death. But I think, you know, through the script and then finally getting to shooting it, it just I don't think it just would have it would have been, been very been, expensive, very expensive, and I and I think also gruesome. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those scenes where it's like I, I like how we ended it. I think I think the I think the editors and I think Shaka did a great job in just like making sure we ended on Hampton mm-hmm. and giving his speech and just a bit more hopeful. Well, I, I think th- I I think ending it on actual footage of Hampton is of course the right note, right, right, right. and mm-hmm. and it and it takes us upward. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I you know I, I you know hey man I, I I long for the other ending of Get Out like I you know I mm. want the dark you know blackness is hard. Like right, you know, right, Will right, O'Neill right. kills him. He jumps in front of a truck. Yeah, but you know, in one of the in one of the first cuts of the film, uh, you know, ended with Bill O'Neill decided committed suicide. That's it. <laughs> and then it was you know credits, and people were just like, "This is." It wasn't even <laughs> just him get murdered. It was just Bill O'Neill committed suicide. Then the music came on, and then that was it. And people were like, "This is the most depressing." Uh, uh, film I've ever seen, and uh, so like you know, it was a lot of back and forth between the studio and just making sure you know we we. I, I think it's right to leave what happened because you know he's such a powerful speaker. You want to see him? I, I mean, in a Hollywood movie, we can't have them walk out of the theater depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Got to walk I mean, out happy so you can tell everybody. Not even great. happy, but just like hopeful, like because it's, it's so it's such a depressing. It's depressing. Like every the whole all of it's depressing, and then it's like right. you know I, I'm, de- I'm I'm glad they 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 went with Hampton at the end. There's I mean there's depressing elements, but I, I am I am definitely lifted by Dan Kalua's portrayal oh. of oh, Hampton. Yeah, yeah. Oh, He's yeah. so powerful. He's so inspiring. 
the speech where he's talking about you can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm just, like, I could watch that speech over and over. Like, that was just wow, so powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were on set when uh, they filmed that scene. And, right. you know, just being there and, like, feeling that energy at the time and just looking at the faces of all the people on the set, they're just like, we just witnessed, we we probably just witnessed one of the greatest things we're ever going to witness in our lives. No, uh, I think we, we're like, we're, I think we're watching a man win an Academy Award. I think that, because <laughs> you, you, you talk about those things and you're like, oh, this guy could win an Academy Award. I was like, oh, no, this is legitimately what it takes to get it. And we're, we're literally front row seat. And right. it was great because it was performance. It was like him on stage. So you're like, I'm used to performing. They're never like that, but I'm used to doing it. I know the difficulty of doing it. And the way he was acting, you could see that he was struggling with that. Like he was literally in performance mode. You can just like, his face was going like, even though he's reading lines, like you can still see that he's, he is in it. Like he is. Right. He right. Is right. And he he perfectly embodied the essence of Fred Hampton. Like, you know, I would, you know, we read all these uh, books about Hampton and, and his speeches and you see, you actually see some of his speeches online and you just, you see how like, uh, how captivated the uh, audiences are when they see this man speak and mm-hmm. in that very, in that very moment, it felt like we were transported back to the late sixties and we were, we yeah. were literally watching Fred Hampton speak at the church. And he, he, I don't know. I just, you just feel chills. Even when I watch it now, I feel chills thinking about shooting that scene. Did he, right. well, let's talk about shooting the scene for a second. Cause did he, did they, did he like just do it like once or twice with like a bunch of cameras or were there lots of cuts? So it was it was a lot to cover. I mean, he did it multiple times. Um, he did the he did the speech multiple times. So like mm-hmm. in the very first one, we you know we gave him a standing ovation, you know. But he still he had to keep doing it because they had to cover Deb, they had to cover Bill, they had to cover Roy Mitchell. So like it was a lot of cam- it was a very difficult scene to shoot. So mm-hmm. uh, hats off to Shaka and uh, Sean Bobbitt and the rest of the team. That, that's a very difficult scene. To very shoot very all, complex all day. Yeah. And you have all, you have a full audience, so you have to cover them too. You have mm-hmm. the drummers you need to cover. Like it was a lot of coverage, and he had I to mean, do that, that. He had to do that speech a multiple times. So and he was and every and every time he gave the speech, it didn't matter if he was on camera or if we were covering Deb or if we were covering. He still delivered it with the same exact precision and the same tone and the same amount of energy. I I've never seen anything like that. Like I was like, this is. Hey, this is true performing. Like this is like this man is at another level. I, I didn't know how he did it. I, I, I again, I, I had no idea what I was watching. But when I saw it, I was like, "Oh, that's acting." That is yeah, acting. it was. It was. It was breathtaking. It was uh, breathtaking to witness to see someone who, in fact, I don't know. Like this is one of his greatest performances of all time. But you know, there's probably another level for him to reach. But I felt like Fred Hampton and playing Fred Hampton unlocked something that we had never seen in Kaluuya before. Even with Get Out, he was a bit more restrained. But here, it was like he was unleashed completely. It was like... Uh, we- Kaluuya, let me, let me, let me, let me approach a, an issue that, that is going around. Because Kaluuya is one of the greatest uh, actors working today. Right? Right, right, just, right? Just period. So you could hardly... I, I can't think quickly of like, well, why don't you get this person? But there is this thing among African-American actors where they say... Why do Hollywood keep giving black historic African American historical icon roles to British actors? Right? And you well, see this with I think we have to ask ourselves is, is that true? 
well, Cynthia Revo plays Harriet Tubman. It's happened a few times, but uh, yeah, King is played by uh, David Oelio. Thurgood so Marshall, it, it, Jackie Robinson. Yeah, and, it's happened a bunch. It's happened it, it, a bunch. It's happened. No, I agree. It's happened, but I feel like I, I think our situation is a little different because Kaluuya is is otherworldly. Yes, <laughs> she's so otherworldly. Cynthia, Cynthia, well. Cynthia is great too. Don't get me wrong. I think Cynthia is phenomenal. I think she's a fantastic actress, and she. I think she she did a great job as Harriet. And and no, I'm not trying to disrespect her. I think she's great. I'm yeah. just talking about the point I'm trying to make is that when you're when when you're casting for Fred Hampton, uh, you want to make sure that the actor that you pick to portray him can embody the spirit and the charisma and all of that. And, and also handle the complexity of the role and handle right. the complexity the complexity of filmmaking and handle the the, the dense uh, nature of the storytelling and who you can trust. Is going to commit themselves to the role, and I and I, and I'm saying we know Kaluuya can do that, and yes. that's not to say that uh, an African American actor can't do that because I'm sure there are plenty of African American actors who we probably could have gone to who would have done the work, but I I think we did the right thing by going with Kaluuya because I, I just I I think he just went to another level. I mean, I mean I'm not going to lie when Shaka like Shaka like Kaluuya was the first person Shaka thought of, and, and he wasn't the first person I thought of. I wasn't thinking. Did you have a did you have an actor in mind? We no, we had a couple people that we were thinking about. We were thinking Stephen James for he was uh he was uh he played uh was it Jackie Robinson, right? No, not Jackie Robinson, he played um um what's the runner? Uh Jesse Owens. Jesse, Jesse Owens. Owens. He played Jesse Owens and he was in If Bill Street Can Talk. He was he we were kind of thinking him. Uh, but when, when Shaka put forth Kaluuya, I, I couldn't think of anyone else. I, you right. know, once he said Kaluuya and I was like, yeah, I guess I, I do see Kaluuya. And then, mm. because I, you know, we saw, we saw Kaluuya in Get Out. We saw him in, um, he was in, uh, Black Widows. Uh, he was Widows. in Widows. I, I never seen like a big performance from like a, like just like a larger than life performance from Kaluuya. Like Get Out, I think was, he was perfect in it. But I, you know, when I'm thinking, when I'm thinking about Hampton, I just, I didn't see it at first. And then Shaka really, like, he 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 made the case. And I can't see any other person playing. playing Did Hampton. you, I mean, he's also famous at a level that, like, like of course, there's, there's, there's a Jamie Foxx, Denzel level, but those folks are a little too old. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he is very famous in that he's going to draw people to the project in a way that, um... You know, there's a lot of actors who are his age and younger who aren't that level of fame. Right. Like half of the half of the battle of casting is like, can you get people to come see the thing? Right. Absolutely. Like, and, and again, I think I think Shaka intuitively knew that. That's something I wasn't thinking about. But like, yeah, it's like Kaluuya is a name. He, he has an Oscar yeah. nomination. Uh, he's I also mean, another worldly actor, but like he also has these other attributes that 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 will certainly help our film and i think it has helped our film i mean were, was lakeith always in your mind for bill or did you have somebody else that we were no thinking we, were, we were thinking lakeith mm-hmm. and, and and i think i mean shaka definitely agreed and yeah lakeith was i don't think did we did we think of anyone else for no it was lakeith from the beginning yeah, yeah. we were like we we had lakeith in mind we wrote it with lakeith in mind and i think they scripted it with lakeith in mind like it was all it was always lakeith I mean, such a great actor, just phenomenal. 
he, he's otherworldly. He's otherworldly. He's, he's, so he's so good. Every, he's so good. What was the just, what was the performance of Lakeith's that made you say, "Yup, yup, this is the guy for our thing"? Because uh, you were thinking about this before was, he was famous. Yeah, right. it, was, it was Jimmy Lee, right? Selma. I saw. I saw. I saw Selma in. Uh, I saw Selma. Get out too. He was great in Get Out. He was great in Get Out, but I, you know, I saw I was that scene with him as Jimmy Lee, really just like I was like, oh man, like I, he was only he was he wasn't in it for long, he wasn't in the film for long, but he, I that scene made me cry, and I was just like, man, he's he has a gift, uh, he has a gift to like move you, but in in brief in a brief moment, obviously when he was in Get Out, it was just like in Atlanta, the, the, those two things that kind of put him at the top, but like. Seeing him at as Jimmy Lee and uh, Selma was was the thing that really like put him put him on my radar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, Lil Rel in this, <laughs> he's brief. I, mean, I know we touched on it before. He's brief, but he's 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 powerful, man. You don't you know right. he, he he's he's he, he sprinkles. It's like you know, no no small actors. You know that whole thing, like. Right. No small roles. I mean, he's 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 powerful in this. Speak up to casting, man. You know, you know, Rel is a uh, Rel is a very talented guy, and uh, I don't think he gets enough credit for his uh, dramatic chops. Uh, you know, because right. he was able to convey. Obviously, he was somewhat humorous, but he was also incredibly scary. And right. That, yeah. I mean, you know, he had a couple other scenes in there too that were that were great that we could that, that didn't make it into the film. Wait, but. Tell me, tell me about a scene. Or a part of the story that you loved that got cut out for whatever reason, and you're like, ah, you know, I know we talked about the the money angle, right. but like, there's always something that you like. Ah, we gotta I leave think, it out. I, but, uh. I think we can. Uh, maybe we can't all agree on this, but there's one scene in particular. So, uh, in it, it was, you know, after Lakeith or after Will Bill O'Neill says, no, "Let's let's bomb City Hall." Uh, that's just like we got C4 we can go bomb him he gets in, mm-hmm. in the original version of the film he gets kicked out of the Panthers mm-hmm. Fred kicks him out and says we don't want you to be in our group any longer so he's like I'm out I did it I'm gone he's happy that he's not, no longer in it but then uh, Roy Mitchell tells him we need you to go back to the uh, go back to Hampton's uh, house and poison him essentially and um, so he has to go back to the house and he, he gets to the front steps and uh, he basically has to beg his he has to beg his uh, way back into the to the uh, house. And so there's one scene where Shaka and, and, and Bobby, they shoot it. It's like an overhead shot. And you have Hampton, you know, you know, standing up tall. And then you have uh, Bill O'Neill sort of you just have a, a shot of his face and he's crying. He's in full tears crying and begging Hampton to come back in. He talks about how mad he was that the cops, you know, killed Winters and how mad he was that the cops killed Jimmy Palmer. And, and he's, he's just, he's just, he was so angry. Uh, and it's, it's one of the best performances I've ever seen. I, mm-hmm. It's just like you, at that point, you're like, is he really sad that mm-hmm. about this shit or is he just acting to get into the house? What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low-sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it, and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member... I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Either way, he's knocking it out of the park. It, it, it's mm-hmm. one of the greatest things. I hope that they release it on the director's cut, but like, it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. It's one of the greatest right. scenes I've ever seen. And I, and I think right. that one of, the great, one of the greater moments of Lakeith in that character where he's like, you just, you're like, what the fuck is going on? I'm watching this guy right. cry and say all the stuff that he thinks he believes, but Ultimately, he's going in there to, to betray Hampton, but we had to cut that out. Beautiful. What's up with the brother who has rabble rouser uh, uh, carved into his chest in the prison? Mm-hmm. What's, what's the story of that? Well, I mean, what was it? I don't know that one. I mean, I know that we, we wanted to show the brutality of prison, and it was a, it was a larger thing happening at the prison. Right, right, right. In the initial script, uh, in the initial script, you know, Will and Shaka, there was a there was a more expansive prison scene, and it was about like Hampton, uh, um, Hampton trying to get a letter to to Deb, but also we we wanted to show Hampton sort of uh, uh, bringing the the prison together to you know, not not necessarily overthrow the prison guards, but you know basically recruit them to join the Panthers. And I think we show, they wanted to show that person to sort of inspire the, 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 the recruitment. But uh, yeah, we couldn't really get into detail about, about the rebel rouser. We couldn't, we couldn't go into de- Like we had to cut some of the prison stuff. We had to, like, cause it was just like, it was too, not that it was too long, but we just had to cut, I mean, for time. But so, but in your mind, Rabble Rouser was written on him by the police. Yes. Right, right, as a right. message to Hampton and everyone else there. Like, right. It was written on by the police, for sure. Mm, mm, mm. I felt so bad for him. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean, I totally forgot about that from the script. And so when I saw it, you know, in the, in the film, I was just like, jeez, oh, that's... Mm-hmm. That is that is uh that's harsh, but I, I mean I, I think Shaka did the right right 
Right. He, he, he wanted, I think he wanted to capture the brutality of prison, but mm-hmm. there's only so many scenes we could do in the prison. So I think that showing that, just showing that one dude was enough for people to be like, holy shit, this is... Yeah, right. shit is real in there. Mm-hmm. Shit is fucked up in there. Did y'all think about taking a cameo? No. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I, I mean, I felt like we could have if we, if we really, like, pushed it, but I'm like, I don't know. It just didn't feel... I don't know. It just didn't feel right. Break the, it, it kind of break the fourth wall a little bit. Right. Yeah, I right. mean, I don't know. Two twins in in, in, <laughs> in in a war zone probably takes takes you away from reality. So, right. uh, I'm kind. I mean, it's like part of for me at least. I like. I kind of like being behind the scenes sometimes. I like. It's it's a little bit more mysterious. It's a little bit more like, how do these dudes get involved? You're a celebrity. Everything has been about like like you made a show, an animated show about you. I know, <laughs> but that's like, why this transition for me is like. It's important for me not to like, I don't know. I, it wasn't about my face being on the screen. It was more okay. about the idea that we had permeating into this huge film. Uh, I mean, I mean, I feel you in terms of like, it, you don't break the dream, right? Like the dream of cinema. Like I'm, I'm in this world mm-hmm. and like sometimes, you know, I mean, sometimes those, those, those cameos are fun and sometimes it's like, Oh look! It's the writers of the film in right. the film. Like, right, right. I, I mean, I, I feel you. I feel you. So, wait, are there? Is there another film in the pipeline? Yeah, uh, we're uh, uh, no, no from from <laughs> no another Lucas brother. No another Lucas Brothers movie. Oh. Yeah, yeah. We we uh so we're working on a film with Lord and Miller. We're working on a script. They they did Twenty Two Jump Street. Uh, and we're we're putting something together. We're working with uh, Seth MacFarlane on Revenge of the Nerds. Mm-hmm. Where we're we're going to be writing the script and starring in that. And we're doing some other stuff with uh, uh, at Universal. Yo, I saw yeah. the original Revenge of the Nerds. Man, that shit was fucking hysterical and <laughs> powerful. And like, I'm surprised it hasn't been remade already. So, right. uh, you know, that's a they they, a, they tried to do it. And they failed. So we're going to get problematic scenes in the, in the first one. So people right. have been like, I don't know, but I, I think we, we have a take on it. That sort of, that will allow us to deconstruct the uh, original one, but also I mean, right, right, right. when the original one came out, the idea like nerds were really like the bottom of the social pyramid mm-hmm. period, end of story. And right. in the decades since then, like, everything's up for grabs. Like the nerds mm-hmm. might be the billionaires. They might be your boss. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you guys are rolling with a nerd aesthetic, like proudly, like <laughs> it's, it's not like just bad. Like you could be a bad nerd. You could be a cool nerd. Like, right, it's, it's, right, right, right. like that, everything has totally changed. Right. I mean, that's part of the, that's baked in sort of the, the, you know, the script, right? Like the, her, the whole idea of nerd culture has evolved since the eighties. Like, right? like nerds, right. they dominate. They are the bullies now. they have all of the power so you can't make a movie about nerds not being in power so in our new in our in our take they are the powerful uh uh, ones they are the bullies so a nine-year journey from from conception to getting this on a screen um what have you learned about storytelling Mm. that you'll take forward with you as you tell more stories Oh, it's, 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 so there is a a fundamental difference between, you know, pure storytelling 
uh, unfiltered by any sort of third party, any sort of commercial aspect. And then there's like mass marketed, uh, filtered storytelling that has to go out to through uh, uh, through a studio and has to have like large distribution deals. And then, and then like if you want your storytelling to be awarded with uh, you know accolades at the end, you, there's another extended process that goes into it. So if you, if you want to tell stories at the highest level, uh, and I, I think we've come to an agreement that cinema might be the highest level, then you're going to, you have to be willing to make concessions. You have to be willing to uh, take into consideration opinions that may not necessarily, you know, cohere with what you think the movie should be. Uh, and, but if you, if you can get to the, the finish line, if you can get there, uh, there's nothing more beautiful to, to yeah. see people watch it, to see people right, right, right. Uh, uh, process it, to see people in their different takes. There is nothing more beautiful than that. And to Kenny's point, I think that, you know, when you're thinking about storytelling in a vacuum, you, you know, you're just like, okay, I have my idea, you know, I'm going to do this, I, you know, I'm going to get it done. But I think what I've learned is like the, the importance of collaboration. Right. Uh, you know, so many pe- different people bring different ideas uh, that then they brought different ideas to the making of this story. And I, I mm-hmm. got to see it from, again, from the beginning to right now. And it's like, I, I, every, every, every time a new piece was added, you know, the story evolved. Uh, and every time a new piece was added, you know, we had to hear different ideas and different, different beliefs and different visions, but it all coalesced, I think, to, to, to make this film what it is. And I truly, truly believe in the art of collaboration. I think that, and you see it a lot in a lot of big Hollywood films. Like, you know, I, I read this book about Chinatown mm-hmm. and, you know, it started off with Robert Town. He was writing the script, but then, you know, they brought in Jack Nicholson. They brought in Polanski. I, mean, I know we can't say his name anymore, but they brought in him and they brought in uh, uh, the producer and they brought in all these different people to, to craft this story. And the same thing happened with us. Like we, we were, we were, we got in, we brought in Shaka. Then Will Burson came in, then Ryan Cooler, then Charles King, then the Panthers themselves. Like all these people played a role in, in, in making this film. And I think that like if you want to if you want to be a, a person in his industry, you have to commit yourself to the art of collaboration and you have to commit yourself to the art of hearing different ideas and and, and working together as a team to get things done. Yeah, I think both of you kind of said the same thing in different ways in terms of collaboration, concessions. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you saying we have to figure out as black storytellers how to tell a story in a way that white people will want to finance and watch? No, not necessarily, because, you know, with our film, Charles King put up half of the funding. He's a he's a black guy. So we were able to get funding mostly from macro and a a, a black person. And even with even with WB, you know, we have. But he's but but he's doing that because he anticipates a return. He's not he's not a not for profit. Right. He's not a philanthropist. Yeah, I'm I'm not saying that. What, What I'm saying is, like, I don't think we have to think so much about how do we get our stories made by convincing a white audience. I think we have to we have to tell ourselves how do we get our stories made by by making the best version of this story. And I think you know collaborating with Shaka, collaborating with Kugler, collaborating with uh, Burson, and 
and, and doing our best to make sure we tell this story the most accurate way that we can, obviously taking some creative liberties. But I think that Charles was attracted to it, not because of what he could gain financially. I think he was attracted to the story because of how committed we were to telling it in, the, in its most honest way. And I mean, obviously, they probably saw in the potential of it, but I, I don't think it's hard for me to think that that's 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 what Charles King is like. No, that's what he's basing his uh, calculus off of, because, you know, you know, these these movies are tough to sell. They don't they don't make a billion dollars. You know what I mean? You speak, speaking of billion dollar movies, you did have uh, somebody who did make a billion dollar movie on the team. Right, right. Ryan Coogler, what's it like working with him and how, you know, like, how is he able to help as a producer? Because I'm sure he's giving like creative ideas. Right. Um, so how, what's, what's it like working with him? Because he's a, he's a, he's a monster. I remember, so the script was sent out to, you know, all of the producers and we got notes back, uh, from, from, uh, you know, from Coogler, from Sev, from from Charles, from I mean, from the macro team, from Proximity, and you know, they uh, they work as a collective. I mean, it's it, you know, you know, it, it wasn't just like Coogler giving notes; it was his whole team giving notes, and then it wasn't just Charles giving notes; it was Charles and his team. So it was it was interesting to see how they work as a collective with within their production companies, uh, and just how they run things. I mean, you know. And and even like but Kuga's uh, notes in particular were very very insightful. I mean, and mm-hmm. I think he he were he definitely worked closely with Shaka to make sure you know the script was uh, you know being truthful and accurate. And but also you know, I, and Shaka told me the story. He was like, you know, the first script that they that they put together was a bit more robust. It was a bit more you know a bit more comprehensive with you know story. I mean, plots about like you know. How, how to raise, get funding for the medical center. And then he said, Cougar told him like, tell, write the story that you guys pitch me. And they basically pitched him, you know, the, uh, the, uh, uh, Bill, I mean, uh, COINTELPRO, I mean, the departed mixed with the COINTELPRO. I mean, they basically pitched him that story. And he, he basically told them like, that's the story that we, that we need to write. And so like, I think that that was the importance of Coogler. Coogler was, Coogler always he's like a very insightful guy and he has his eyes he has his eyes on the goal and I think he was able to push uh the writers to to tell the story that 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 they eventually told and I think that was in large part because he 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 kind of sees he just really understands the industry he understands it so mm-hmm. I don't think any of us any of any of the writers understood he has mm-hmm. just a more uh, he just has a more uh, uh more what's the word I'm looking for expansive expansive because he's more experienced i mean he's he's been working at the highest level and you know making black panther and also being he's also with, an auteur he's he right. just yeah he under he understands the filmmaking process more so than i think a lot of people so right. when so, was yeah. this shot hmm? when was this shot this was shot uh so we started filming in late 2019 in cleveland mm-hmm. october to december yeah. Oh, back so so back when everything was normal. Yeah, everything yeah. was normal. Yeah, right, you bef- could fly. Like right before, right like before, we started right we started before everything was normal. So when was it finished uh, being edited? Well, so so Christian, he's he's our editor. He, he was already he already started editing while we were filming, but uh, I think Shaka got into the room around January, and 
Uh, they, we were supposed to be done because, you know, we didn't know about COVID. We were supposed to be done by August. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once COVID happened, that disrupted the edit. And so everyone had to, they started editing remotely. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think it got done until uh, maybe like November, December. It was mm-hmm. late. When of last year. Of, of, 20, of last year. Of 2020. Of 2020. Um, any disappointment in like, damn, it's not going to come out in the theaters. I mean, it is out in the theaters, but like really people are going to consume this via right, right, right. television, computers, rather right. than on the big screen. How, how does that hit you? I mean, I, I, I think that I, I was initially very disappointed. I'm like, oh man, I wanted, to, I wanted people to experience this in the cinema. But I think after the year that we've had with COVID and people dying and, and you know, this just the, the, the scourge of this disease, it's very hard to like be like, oh, I really want people to go to the theater to see right. this. I'm like, I, I just want to entertain people. I want people to watch something and take, if, if I can take their minds off of the reality of COVID for two hours and they feel they come, they feel something other than the, the fear of getting that disease. And I feel like I've done a service and I, I feel that's way more important now than satisfying whatever sort of ego yeah. trip I would have had putting it in the cinema. Yeah. Ultimately you want people to see the film, learn something, um, absorb the message. And I, I mean, how they see it, it doesn't really, it, I mean, I, I'm a big theater guy. I, I love going to the movie theater. I love seeing films in, on the big screen, but mm-hmm. ultimately like, I, I just want people to see the film by any, by any means necessary. I, I want right. to spread story out there and I want to get his, at least get his message out there. I, I'm already seeing people like starting to do more research about Fred Hampton and, and talk about him and, 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 you know, learn more about COINTELPRO. Like there was a spike in, in Google searches for COINTELPRO. Like, that's 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 what I want to see, and and we're already seeing that. So I'm like, we 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 did we 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 did it. We served that purpose, and and it doesn't matter how they see it. We just want people to see it. Yeah, you've definitely entertained in the highest sense of that word, and also educated without mm-hmm. it being uh, didactic or like <laughs> exactly. now we're going to tell you about the Panthers, right, like right. you know, or it's like it's not. It doesn't feel propagandistic, but mm-hmm. it does like. Like, look at the Panthers, like feeding children, like mm-hmm. uniting the community, like chilling out the violence, like trying to help people, like, mm-hmm. you know, being brought down by the fucking CIA and the FBI. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's it's, uh, it's a great film. So, you know, congratulations. Thank you. Thank Y'all you. Y'all should brother. be proud, you know? Super proud. And uh, again, I, I like to just give a shout out to everybody involved. I mean, because it, it took a took a village to make the film and uh I, i'm glad that everyone's sort of getting recognized for their for their contributions from costume to makeup to to, Yo, to the writing to the, the directing to the, the hat that hampton is wearing in his first scene oh my god the, the camo bucket hat That's i'm so like beautiful. yo where can i get that i love that <laughs> and his hat is cocked aside i'm like yo i'm about to love this character Right, that bucket right. hat was something else, man. It was insane. Yeah, that was a costume designer, Charlize, man. She's 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 so talented. Now they looked they looked good in terms of having the Panther look without it being cliche right. about mm-hmm. it. 
You've know never I mean? seen that take before. You, you generally see them in like leather and, beret, you know, the leather berets. But now it was like, you know, it was it was good to see Hampton just like, you know, I mean, obviously he had his military fatigues, but it was it was still like it's something we've never seen before on, on, mm-hmm. on the screen. So, like, so when the last thing, when Bill was saying, when Bill kind of breaks up with them, when he's saying, let's bomb <laughs> City Hall, right? You know, you said kill them all, get total satisfaction. And when, mm-hmm. when 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 Daniel says kill them all, get total satisfaction, I love that line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is he saying, "I hear you"? Let's go be the ultimate Panthers, or is he saying, "I am leading you into the trap to get you fucked"? I think it's the latter. Mm-hmm. And think, and yeah. Hampton sees that. Hampton is yeah. too smart. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if he sees him as a, 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 a. I don't know if he sees him as an informant, but he certainly sees him as a as someone whose whose decisions are going to lead to a lot more people getting murdered. Mm-hmm. I think I think Hampton was comfortable with 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 himself dying for the cause, but I don't think he was comfortable with his members dying. Right. I think he was committed to his principles, and, and you know, obviously, he led by example, but. I don't think he just wanted to lead his 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 team to slaughter. Mm-hmm. You know, he believed in defense, self defense, and defending yourself against police brutality. But just an attack on City Hall—that's terrorism, and that's mm-hmm. terrorist. Thanks so much to the Lucas Brothers for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle Brenda Cox, Kathy F., Dr. Keena Murphy, and Earl Dorsey. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you'd never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we'll be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. Mm-hmm.